Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Dom Nichols, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we hear from our assistant common editor about how the Council of Europe is creating a register of damages for the costs caused by Russia's war in Ukraine, and about an operation to take down a very technically advanced piece of Russian malicious software. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday the 17th of May, one year and 82 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by Assistant Comment Editor Francis Durnley, Foreign Reporter Genevieve Hall-Allen and Senior Tech Reporter Gareth Caulfield. I started by going through the latest news from Ukraine. So I'll start with some tactical updates. So let's go straight back to the missile and um, the cruise missile and, and drone strikes uh, last or yesterday morning, so uh, Monday, Tuesday night. So we were talking about the US Patriot air defence system that was reportedly damaged or reportedly destroyed by Russia during the attacks on Monday, Tuesday night, um, the strikes. We spoke about it yesterday with Heathcliff O'Malley, our, our guy out, uh, out in Kiev at the moment. Russia said a Patriot battery was destroyed. We talked about the unclear imagery. There was a, a still photo of a blast at ground level, and I said I didn't know if that was a launch or if it was a, an explosion or what have you. I said a battery would likely be dispersed anyway. It now seems that part of one of the batteries was damaged, either by a missile. Russia said these were Kinzhal hypersonic missiles or debris from from a missile or a missile that was heading somewhere else and was knocked down and, uh, and exploded on the ground. We are not sure, but there is that image, like I say, of an explosion at ground level. Now, after the attack, Valery Zeluzny, the uh, General Zeluzny, the commander-in-chief of Ukraine's armed forces, he said that all of Russia's air-launched missiles had been successfully intercepted. Now, as I said, we've got no way of verifying other than having our own people on the ground, which we did, but it was a different part of town from where Heathcliff was. So we couldn't confirm that. Today, Colonel uh, Yuri Inhat, the, the Ukrainian Air Force spokesman, he said that 
He said the Patriot Division, his word, I'll come back to that. He said the Patriot Division was made up of a radar unit and eight launchers scattered in different locations for protection. Now, you know, we would normally use the term battery to describe a um, a grouping of air defence missiles. So when Colonel Inyat is talking about a division, you know, I don't know what size he's saying there, but ordinarily in the US doctrine, they would use a, um, they'd have a radar unit, a control station, and about three launchers. So uh, Colonel Inyat's talking about eight launchers. Maybe that's why he's describing it as a Patriot division. But it looks as if something, one part of that was damaged. Now, in the attack, let's just remind ourselves, Monday, Tuesday night, this was nine cruise missiles, six Kinshal hypersonic, so-called hypersonic missiles, uh, six Shahid 136 drones, the Iranian-made drones, and three S-400 ballistic missiles fired from ships in the Black Sea. Only reports of injuries, no deaths. And a US official spoke yesterday, last night, told CNN a Patriot battery, part of a Patriot battery was probably damaged, not destroyed, their words. And um, they said uh, officials were evaluating whether or not it could be fixed locally in Ukraine by by their engineers or has to be pulled out and, and fixed elsewhere. Now, we know US, the Netherlands and Germany have supplied Patriots. And I, th- I thought there were three, possibly four in country with more with more to follow. So we'll, we'll track that one. But it doesn't look as if anything's been completely destroyed. Like I said, that's why you disperse this system. It's, it's designed to, to withstand a, a strike. Unless you hit the, the radar or the actual control station, then, um, you know, you, you, you're, it's only going to be limited damage. But, yeah, we will track that one. Right, separately. Now, in a video posted on social media, Yevgeny Prigozhin, who's um, heading up the Wagner Group, he's claimed his soldiers have killed a US volunteer fighter in Bakhmut. Now, the footage on social media shows Prigozhin inspecting a body and what he claims are Pentagon identification cards showing the man was a former US Army Special Forces soldier from Boise, Idaho. You know, again, with no way, no way of knowing. Be very surprised if anybody who had a military background let alone an sf background was carrying all that kind of clobber on them now we have not verified the authenticity of the documents or confirmed the man's nationality or identity so we're not going to use the name that wagner have given i'm not going to repeat prigozhin's words on the video i would say they are on the face of it respectful of the fighter in no way denigrates the individual but i'm i'm not sure if they're if they're genuine and heartfelt, so, you know, no need to rabbit to be a mouthpiece for Prigozhin. But a US State Department official said they were aware of the report and seeking additional information. The official said, our ability to verify reports of deaths of US citizens in Ukraine is extremely limited. But the department did offer its condolences to the families of all of those whose lives have been lost as a result of Russia's unprovoked and unjustified war against Ukraine. The official then reiterated that US citizens should not travel to the country, and we think it's 12 US nationals so far have died in fighting in Ukraine. Right, one last one uh, from me. So I'm looking now at Bakhmut, uh, eastern Donbass, uh, reporting from the ISW, the Institute for the Study of War, US-based think tank. They're saying Russian forces have likely committed to reinforcing that area in face of the recent Ukrainian forces' local counterattacks. So the head of the so-called Donetsk People's Republic militia, this is Denis Pushilin, he said yesterday that Russian forces have strengthened their positions around Bakhmut to stabilise the situation. This was backed up by the Russian uh, mill blogger community. A prominent mill blogger said that four 
unspecified Russian battalions have deployed to the flanks around Bakhmut to prevent Ukrainian breakthroughs. It's the it's the flanks north and south of the city that have been under extreme pressure and they where Russian forces have had to go backwards in the last few days. Now, Russian claims about their reinforcements are consistent with what Ukraine's Deputy Defence Minister Hanna Malyar said on Monday when she said that Russian forces are deploying additional airborne troops, the VDV, the airborne forces, to defend the flanks, which undoubtedly would have come from other areas of the front. I don't think these people are going to be held in the rear anywhere. Now, Russia continues to make marginal gains inside the city, the Wagner Group, and the Russian MOD is still saying that they are repelling counterattacks on the flanks, but it, it is difficult to tell. It slowed down a little bit from the activity of a few days ago. Russian MOD further said, this is, this is yesterday, they said that elements of the 4th Motor Rifle Brigade, which is part of 2nd Luhansk People's Republic Army Corps, I think that's a very grand way of, of saying not a lot, really, said they repelled 10 Ukrainian counterattacks near Ivaniska, which is now, we're now 6Ks west of Bakhmut. And as I said, I said yesterday, we've no way of verifying that. And when we, I've said yesterday, putting a number on these things, a number of counterattacks or the number of positions taken is pretty meaningless. I mean, you know, in this regard, you know, was that counterattack a fire team of four people assaulting something or was it a battalion attack? I mean, we don't know. So the numbers are, are relatively meaningless. OK, so Francis, going to turn to you, if I may. Interesting comments from um, Olaf Scholz, Chancellor of Germany, about um, seizing Russia's assets for Ukraine compensation. For those that don't know, Olaf Scholz, uh, he was born on the 14th of June, 1958, served as Chancellor since the 8th of December, 2021. He's a member of the Social Democratic Party, previously served as Vice-Chancellor in the 4th Merkel Cabinet and as Federal Minister of Finance from 2018 to 21. And he was also first Mayor of Hamburg from 2011 to 2018 and Deputy Leader of the SPD from 2009 to 2019, but hey, that's just that's just you know what I what I, I know of, of old Ollie. But Francis, can you talk to us about what's happened at the Council of Europe? Well, thanks, Tom. It's good to be back. I've just about recovered from Eurovision, although I still have Norway's entry stuck in my head. Hopefully, it will have vanished by the end of today. But as you say, this is an interesting story out of the Council of Europe. And I'm going to start actually just by giving a little bit of background on what the Council of Europe is, as I know it can be quite hard to keep track of all of these European bodies, which often have overlapping remits. So in brief, Council of Europe founded in the wake of the Second World War to uphold human rights, democracy and the rule of law in Europe. It is distinct from the European Union. It can't make laws, for instance, but it does have the ability to push for the enforcement of select international agreements reached by the member states on a variety of topics. And its best known body is the European Court of Human Rights, which is a body not without controversy in the European context, but one that is hugely important in enforcing international agreements and all manner of subjects. But this story here is that the Council of Europe, which meets today, is creating a register of damages to record Russia's destruction of Ukraine for future compensation. So it's been lodged at The Hague and aims to record tangible costs that Russia has exacted on Ukraine since the war began. So essentially, it's an attempt to make Moscow accountable long term for what has happened in Ukraine, not just morally, but financially. And leaders from the council, you talk about German Chancellor Olaf Scholz there, 
French President Emmanuel Macron too, very, very keen to emphasise that Moscow will be held accountable for the harm that it has done. And Macron has indeed written on Twitter. He said that in creating an international register for damages caused by Russia's aggression against Ukraine, the Council of Europe shows the way by the side of the victims. I call on all states to join and contribute. And President Zelensky, who opened the summit with a international call, he thanked them. He said in his speech that this brings us closer to the creation of a fully fledged compensation mechanism that will show the world that aggression is not worth thinking about. And we've already seen this morning that the German government are saying that they're looking into further mechanisms to secure war damages, which include the possibility of using frozen Russian assets as compensation for Ukraine. That is a contentious area legally, which is why this has been rumbling on for some time. But interesting that they have said publicly that they're going to be looking into that as part of all of this. The Ukrainian prime minister has signed the register this morning, as has the Icelandic prime minister and the prime minister of the Netherlands. So I expect there'll be some more developments on that today. And if there are any more substantial ones, and of course, I'll report on those tomorrow. Staying in Europe, however, breaking news in the past hour that Hungary is blocking the release of another 500 million euros from EU funds to help arm Ukraine. This is following the news that we reported last week that the member states have now formally signed off on using 2 billion euros for a plan aimed at getting a million artillery shells to Ukraine over the next year. This now all means that the bulk of 8 billion euros currently allocated to the Joint European Peace Facilities, that's the EPF, has gone towards Ukraine. But Budapest, which, as we've talked about at length in the past, has the closest ties in the EU to Russia, is saying that it opposes a new disbursement as the funds were meant to support partners around the world, not just Ukraine. So they've said that the Hungarian government does not agree that the EU, having other instruments at its disposal, should use the peace facility exclusively for Ukraine. Now, the, there's no great shocks to this, but further underlines, I think, that Hungary continues to be an outlier on Ukraine in the European context and something, of course, that does have consequences because it makes certain agreements a little bit more difficult to push through, not necessarily this one. But in other news, in a it's that time of the week when I update listeners on the grain deal. No doubt you'll be on tenterhooks given that the deadline for any extension is tomorrow. There is just one bit of news, which is that Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov has said that the decision on whether or not the Black Sea grain deal will allow the export of Ukrainian grain to be extended has not yet been announced. So they're keeping shtum, as we say, and they're not giving anything away, although the news out of the conference seems to be that that we are expecting there to be an extension but nothing formal yet the real question is whether if there is an extension what will have been agreed to enable it russia has repeatedly threatened as i've talked about in the past not to extend the deal unless there are obstacles to its own grain and fertilizer exports that are removed so we will have to see on that. And I think it's interesting that they are wanting this to go down to the wire. Perhaps they think they can get certain concessions as a last minute 
move to in order to get uh, the deal through. So we'll see. And I, of course, will have some nuance on that. Lastly, since we're on the subject of exports, a new report has been published into the impact of sanctions on Russian oil exports. It's called the Russian Oil Exports Under International Sanctions Report. Not the jazziest of titles, but it's really interesting this. And it's by the International Working Group on Russian Sanctions and the KSE Institute. And it offers a comprehensive data set on Russian exports to evaluate the impact of international sanctions as focusing on crude oil and oil products. And the essence of it is that it finds that the sanctions that have been imposed have worked. It says that the that there has been a noticeable impact on the Russian economy, that it has successfully managed to, despite the economy still functioning with regard to oil, that it has managed to reduce the value of oil in the international markets as a consequence of the sanctions. That was something that many feared would not happen, but they're saying that it has happened, saying in value terms, crude oil and oil product exports have fallen by $15.6 billion dollars in 2023 Q1 versus 2022 Q4. And this accounts for 40% of the total decline in good exports. So not in any ways insignificant this, but it does say with some caveats here that there are violations of the European price cap on oil and it underscores really the need for urgent and more rigorous enforcement. And it concludes that a critical focus of sanctions policy going forward is really vital should the enforcement of existing sanctions on Russian oil begin to decline in the next few months. So an interesting report, this, and one that, as I say, you can quite easily find online by searching its title. Now, the extent of the damage wrought by this war on the Russian economy remains an open and essential question. Another interesting piece on the Russian Times last week was saying that Russia's spending on the war in Ukraine has reached 30 billion rubles a day, which is an amount that's comparable to what the poorest regions collect for the Treasury in a year. So just to put that into some kind of context... In the 2023 budget, the Ministry of Finance laid down 5 trillion rubles under the item of national defence. And by mid-May, we understand it's already spent two-thirds of this amount. And according to some analysts, you've got a sort of toxic combination of where the budget is sharply having to be increased for defence spending. But the situation of income is down from sanctions and gas cuts on all of these things I've just been talking about in Europe. And on top of that, there is the recession in the Russian economy. The question is, is that sustainable? And that really depends on who you ask. And it also will depend on the degree of support from China and Russia's allies, which of course is why I focus so much on China on this podcast recently because their role in all of this is absolutely fundamental, Dom. And so more on that as we have it. Yeah, thanks, Francis. Just on that before we move to Genevieve. But the Russian economy, I mean, they, if it starts to hurt, they will surely sort of rein in back to the most important bits, which is them and the system and the, the war fighting machine. So yeah, I think it will take a long time before this really has an impact in um, in kind of defence terms, but where do you think we would start to see cracks appearing on the, the sort of on the edges of the jigsaw, if you like, if this really is having a damaging effect on Russia's economy? Where should where should we look to see that it, that they are properly taking note of it? I think that's a very good question. I think the 
as you say, I think it's going to be the military side of things we would see last. And I think we'd also see relatively little impact in the major urban centres of St. Petersburg and Moscow, because for all of the reasons we've talked about in the past, the priority for the Kremlin is keeping the people in those cities happy. And there are all sorts of historical reasons for that that we've talked about in the past. If you keep the cities happy in Russia, then generally speaking, the Kremlin can survive. But it's when the populations in those territories get upset, then you've got a serious problem. So to answer your question, Dom, I would look to the provinces. I would look to the more rural areas. I'd look to the fringes of the Russian economy. And if things start getting dicey there, then I think you know that the this is all starting to have a major impact. And there is already some evidence that that is the case. There are already administrations that have having to be bailed out from the centre, but expect the, the bailouts not to be coming as quickly as they have currently been, I think, in the months and, and possibly longer ahead, if we're to see that those impacts really starting to have an impact. Yeah, lovely. Thanks, Francis. Now, at the end of your report there, you were talking about how so much of that and so much of the whole situation depends on China and their their response. So Genevieve, you've been looking at some other stories and you've got one that directly relates to China. Can you take us through that, please? Hi, Dom. And yes, this is about China telling foreign missions not to display what they described as political propaganda, which diplomats have said is aimed at Ukraine flags. A notification which was dated May 10th and has been seen by Reuters was issued by China's foreign ministry and it read... Do not use the building facilities exterior walls to display politicised propaganda to avoid inciting disputes between countries. And the notice was was addressed to, and I quote, all embassies and international organisations, China representative offices. Now, although this notification did not specify any particular so-called propaganda displays or mention the Ukraine flag explicitly, four diplomats in Beijing told Reuters on the condition of anonymity that it was clearly related to Ukraine solidarity exhibits. One diplomat whose embassy is displaying a Ukraine flag told Reuters that they got the letter, they said, to ordering them to refrain from using the outer walls of their buildings for politicised propaganda, but they added that the mission did not intend to comply with this notification. When asked about the notice at a briefing, Foreign Ministry spokesman Wang Wenbin said that embassies and offices of international organisations had what they what he said was a duty to respect China's laws and regulations, and he did not elaborate any further. So this has come just as Chinese envoy Li Hui is expected to wrap up a two-day visit to Ukraine today before heading on to Poland, France, Germany and Russia, according to the China's foreign ministry last week and what we've spoken about across the past couple of episodes. Well, blimey, if he doesn't like politicised propaganda, he's going to have a field day when he gets to Moscow. But uh, also news from NATO's latest member, the 31st member of NATO, Finland, um, having a bit of, uh, bit of trouble. Yes. So Finland has said today that bank accounts of its embassies in Russia have been frozen. And this is according to the Finnish foreign ministry today. A spokesman for the ministry told Reuters that the bank accounts of the Moscow embassy and its consulate in St. Petersburg, so obviously Russia's two major cities, were not functioning 
And the foreign minister for Finland, Pekka Havisto, told reporters that Finland had requested an explanation for this on May the 5th after the account stopped working on April 27th and also requested that Russia ensure the mission's ability to function in the country. So, yes, the Russian central bank has, has frozen the, these accounts and Finland has not received an official explanation from Moscow on this. Uh, Mr. Harvesto told reporters, the accounts of Finnish embassies have been frozen in Russia and at the moment they cannot be used. And he said that the missions have been using their cash reserves to pay the bills. And as you say, Finland is is the most recent member to join NATO. And this actually happened that they joined formally on April the 4th. So the same month that these accounts were frozen. And it is a this is just the latest in a, in a string of developments between the two countries, Finland and Russia within Russia. You may remember that it also in April, the Kremlin took control of the Russian subsidiaries of Finland's Fortum, which is their state controlled utility and the country's largest And at the time, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said that the Kremlin wanted to establish a, and I quote, compensation fund to hit back against what he described as the illegal expropriation of Russian assets abroad. So, yes, tensions continue to rise between NATO's latest member and Russia. Thanks, Genevieve. Now, with a really fascinating story, Gaz, I'm so glad you could join us today. Gareth Caulfield, our senior tech reporter. This was a story that you wrote for us about Operation Medusa. I mean, I won't introduce it because it's just it's absolutely fantastic. I want you to sort of give us the full bells and whistles, but a major a major ransomware takedown. I feel like there should be some sort of kind of introductory music because it's so sort of exciting. But anyway, Gaz, over to you. I look forward, Dom, certainly, to there being a sort of introductory music, an exciting orchestral piece that, that brings in the, the weird and wonderful world of cybersecurity again. But uh, yes, this was Operation Medusa, which was the takedown of a major espionage malware network used by Russia's FSB, uh, Federal Security Service. Operation Medusa, so named because the malware itself was codenamed Snake in the West. So, you know, there you go, the analogy, cutting off the snake's heads. This was a, and so a major operation announced last week um, where the, the Five Eyes countries, that is Britain, the US, Canada, Australia and New Zealand, uh, all came together to announce that they had successfully taken down or blunted the uh, ability of the Snake malware network to operate. Now, this this is quite a major um, intelligence coup with direct impacts in Ukraine, as the the FSB has been using Snake extensively in that country to um, to carry out its espionage activities going back ooh, more than twenty years, according to the experts I spoke to, to uh, learn a bit more about this last week. So it's it was described by the US on Tuesday as or last Tuesday as the most sophisticated cyber espionage tool designed and used by Rogers Federal Security Service for long-term intelligence connection on sensitive targets meaning you know, the US the Ukrainian military and the Ukrainian government. It is used we've got quite a lot of excellent detail here about exactly who used it where and how from. So the the US government said center 16 of the FSB there is a a unit field post number for for collectors of such things. Center 16 have been deploying this from a couple of sites within Russia. And the way it worked, Snake, was that there is it's what they call a peer-to-peer network. Very technically advanced piece of software where it establishes connections between infected computers. So for those listeners who have come who have heard me uh, come on before and, and talk about malware and all that kind of good stuff, 
This is very similar to the kind of ransomware networks we've seen before in terms of the concept of how it operates. So you have a, a set of computers that are used to deploy a piece of malicious software that compromises targets and then sort of bunny hops almost between them, going from point to point to point, establishing communication links through which data can be observed, extracted or stolen or exfiltrated in the, uh, in the sort of quasi-military parlance of the cybersecurity world. And this has been going on, as I, as I mentioned, all the way back into, so, John Hulkvist of Mandiant, uh, a cybersecurity intelligence company now owned by Google. Mr. Hulkvist told me that he had been tracking it himself since the late 90s in a previous form, a very, very early build by the FSB. Now, the direct origins of Snake go back to the USA to the early 2000s, where they saw this tool being constructed and deployed in a very early stage, in a very early form, when cyber espionage and the use of the internet to steal data and, and uh, achieve other intelligence effects was quite a limited thing. And over the past 20 years, the Western agencies, the Five Eyes countries, and indeed most of the Western world's major cybersecurity companies have been tracking this snake malware network. It's known by a variety of nicknames. Of course, the cybersecurity world is nothing unless everybody has got his own unique nickname for it. It is variously and I think most commonly known as Turla, T-U-R-L-A, for those who want to get on your favourite search engine and look it up. The Turla network then was, was quite widespread. Uh, it was used extensively in Ukraine by the FSB since, we believe, the 2010s or so, although maybe slightly off there, but certainly in, in the context of the most recent events in Ukraine. We can trace it dry, directly back to there. It played a significant part in the 2014 invasion of Ukraine by Russia. And yes, so to the takedown. The West has, for quite a few years now, successfully mapped out the Turla networks, the uh, areas of compromised computers that the Russian FSB was using to operate this, to, to use Snake to steal confidential data, to compromise further computers. And, you know, it, it really was very widespread. I mean, to give an, an illustrative example, I spoke to Don Smith, Vice President of Research at uh, SecureWorks, another cybersecurity company, and he described to me a, a terrible incident, terrible incident, where um, a, a Russian intelligence operative dropped a USB stick outside a US military base in the Middle East. And on this USB stick was the snake malware payload. And, you know, of course, a curious soldier comes along, picks it up, says USB stick, ooh, what's this? Plugs it into his computer and unleashed an absolute counterintelligence nightmare for the US, which took, I think, 14 months for them eventually to er completely eradicate from US military networks. But that, that sort of little vignette there gives you a, a picture of just how determined and persistent the snake malware is by design, and also how its operators are very cunning and crafty in the way they deploy it and, and infiltrate it into anywhere they can. In fact, the, the Russians themselves are believed to have called it Uroboros, which is a... Uh, I believe a voodoo-type nickname. We know that because during the, uh, some of the investigations into Snake, uh, they actually found a code snippet hidden in there, uh, which says, Uroboros, go to you. And that snippet served no other purpose than as a sort of, almost a piece of digital graffiti with the creators, you know, the equivalent of Ivan was here. Uroboros, go to you. So that's, that's another one of the many varied nicknames Snake was known by. So, the takedown last week. The US authorities took the lead on this and saying what they'd done and how. Uh, it was in the US telling of events, an FBI operation. They managed to track its infrastructure through 50 countries across all of the continents. I'm told by well-placed sources that not only was it also infecting computers and servers and systems in the United Kingdom, 
but also then our very own National Cyber Security Centre, an arm of GCHQ, was deeply involved in identifying uh, where Snake was operating in this country and where it was being used to have an effect and to gather intelligence information on British intentions for the Russians in countries abroad. Unfortunately, none of those sources would come out of the shadows, as it were, and tell me any more about the British involvement. I'm afraid I should have to park that there, much to my great regret. Yes, so the takedown. The, what the Western authorities, led by the US, said they had smashed the snake malware network last week. They said they had taken down the command and control networks that operated the networks of peer-to-peer, the peer-to-peer networks of computers used to operate Snake. What that means is it's essentially blinded the Russians. It has knocked out the FSB's premier digital espionage tool. This is a major coup, a major victory. And of course, the timing coming right around the time that we expect the, the uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive to be underway to recapture territory from, taken from Russia, is, as, as quite a few sources sur- surmise to me, probably no coincidence. Taking out the Russians' digi- you know, premier digital espionage tool right when they will need it most is, a lot of people suspect, a deliberate part of the grander plan to support the Ukrainian military efforts. Uh, yes, that, that is Snake in a nutshell. It's a very advanced and persistent tool. Uh, the FSB actually used it to hack a satellite network back in 2015. Um, I was told to go and look up a report by Kaspersky Lab, which is, strangely enough, a Russian cybersecurity company. Kaspersky had detected Turla, the, the code name for the FSB, had infected a particular, but as yet unidentified, satellite internet network. And what they had done was, once they got the snake network, once they got its, its fangs into the, the satellites to sort of oversimplify it a bit, they were then using that as a, as a piece of their own command and control infrastructure, using the satellite's worldwide reach to, um, <laughs> to, act, to actually you know, oper- you know, function as part of their own operation. So, you know, there's, there's little, little, little fascinating little details in there. I think one of the big takeaways, though, is that it's not a permanent takedown. Now, although it's a big intelligence coup, by the very nature of Snake, it is one of these distributed networks where you can, you, know, you can hack it, you can cut off the snake's heads, you can take out command and control servers. But, of course, this is a piece of malicious software that is designed to replicate, to spread, to infiltrate, to go under the radar. So there will be a... You know, it will, the snake will rise again. The snake will hiss again, certainly. But I think the consensus that from the experts I've spoken to is that it would be down for weeks, probably months. Thanks, Gaz. Just one quick question for me, and then I know Francis wants to jump in. Where, Just so broadly, where's the InfoSec community at the moment? What are they making of the this side of of the war and uh, am i still right to be surprised at the kind of the the lack the the level of russian electronic warfare and cyber involvement is that am i being too generous there or have they have they actually turned up what's the chatter around the around the pubs you're drinking the chatter that i've been hearing is that a lot of the cyber war stuff has quite deliberately remained under the radar but this is so. So the snake takedown was actually uh, took a few people by surprise in, in a very positive way because the chatter had been hitherto that it was all you know the Russian cyber intentions the horns had been withdrawn almost that they were focusing on very low level tactical um, you know cyber attacks to take out specific pieces of infrastructure ahead of a localized push or to target particular businesses as a way of crippling the Ukrainian economy and that the idea that there was a, some sort of one identifiable hydra the snake malware network that could be targeted in a major piece of effect on russia and a major coup for the pro-ukrainian side um, that that was something that took a lot of people i think by by surprise but we were very happy and certainly some of the sources i spoke to were also 
quite relieved that sort of 20 years of patient effort documenting this have finally come to fruition and been used for the greater good. So it's, yeah, it's a surprise, but it's a happy one. And I think a lot of cyber people are happy to also see a little bit of the, uh, a little bit of the limelight, a little bit of their own contribution finally being publicly recognised there. Hi, Gareth. If I could just jump in here. I'm not fluent in any way in all of these tech questions. So forgive me if this sounds like a very ignorant question. But there's been an enormous amount of conversations about AI and its potential to have drastic ramifications on almost every area of of our lives. But I wonder what do you think the impact of AI could be on cyber warfare? Because I'm imagining it could be pretty considerable. And that's a that's a really good question, Francis. And I shall I shall try and restrain myself from giving you a verbal dissertation on that one because it's uh, it's one of those ones that's been exercising a lot of bright minds for a long time. The short version, without going into into great depth, is that it's going to have a substantial impact. Now, a few weeks ago, I was at Microsoft's headquarters in Redmond, Washington State, and they were showing me all the things they've built off the back of ChatGPT and the technology underlying ChatGPT called GPT four. And you may think, what's that got to do with this? One of the things they showed me was their cybersecurity services. And one of the big problems in cyber, as you correctly identify, is that an awful lot of that world is deeply technical. It's full of buzzword bingo. And if you're an outsider or if you're only just starting your journey into understanding it, it's very difficult to pick it all up and get a clear sense of what's going on. Now, what Microsoft had done was plugged, essentially plugged ChatGPT into all of their cybersecurity tools and products and services. So somebody of average knowledge and skill could go to it and say, goodness me, ChatGPT, what on earth has happened here? My network's gone wrong. Can you figure it out and tell me? And you could type more or less. It was obviously a bit more technical than that, but more or less that sort of prompt into it. And it would go out and it would come back and it would say, oh, yes, these servers have been affected by that malware. I recommend these steps to fix them. Now, that's an example of implementing AI technology for good as a sort of a defender's product. But it takes very little imagination to turn that 180 degrees and say, well, we could build ourselves an AI tool, an AI chatbot, where an average skilled person, an average you know, military recruit or cyber recruit, could be sat down in front of that and told, go and hack something, go and steal some data. Here is your faithful AI mate who will give you a hand on the journey. You no longer need to have years of experience of committing cybercrime in the, in the Russian sort of uh, career path and how these things work out. You no longer need years of expensive training and learning to code and learning how computer networks are built and operate and all that good stuff. You've got a handy AI tool that will do all the heavy lifting for you. You just need to be its guiding mind, as it were. But there's also, I mean, I'm going to restrict myself to just one last remark on this. There are also other cyber tools out there. So there's one particularly interesting one called AutoGPT. Now, as its name suggests, it's, a, it's another chatbot. But AutoGPT has what in the technical lingo is called agency. So you give it a goal, you give it one thing to achieve, and it goes off and does it, and it autonomously acquires resources to do so. So AutoGPT, if you tell it, for example, let's give it a benign example here. If you tell it, I want to go, and, I want to go on holiday to Cancun. AutoGPT is quite capable of looking up flights, booking flights, making payments for flights, speaking to travel agents to clarify details, all that sort of thing. It's a really quite powerful and advanced tool. As I say, it's it's only a matter of time before somebody malicious picks that up and says, well, what can I make this do in service of my goals, which may not be particularly positive. So there you go, Francis. I think it's going to have a, a particularly insidious impact on the cyber world. Thanks, Gaz. Thanks, uh, thanks Francis. We'll draw to, um, start to draw to the 
to the finish now. Francis, can I come to you for your final thoughts, please? Well, thanks, Dom, and thanks, Gareth, for that really interesting answer. No doubt a subject we'll want to return to. But if we've just been covering the cutting edge of Russian cyber espionage, I wanted to return to OG espionage. And it's a story from the Danish Broadcasting Corporation, which they've published on their website. It is in Danish, but as ever, these things are easily translatable using Google Translate or other software. And what they've done is looked at various protests taking place around Europe in France, in Belgium, in the Netherlands and in Spain against the war in Ukraine or supposedly against the war in Ukraine. So they've looked at a protest back in March in Paris and they saw that some of the individuals who were holding up banners saying things like we don't want arms for Ukraine down with the government for its Ukraine policy that these individuals are the same ones at other protests around Europe. And they've essentially done a big deep dive into who these individuals might be. And of course, it's all connected to the Kremlin and uh, state-sponsored counter-disinformation activities, whatever you want to describe it. And so I'd point this to this piece just as an example of how perhaps the least subtle example of trying to sow disinformation in Europe that perhaps we've seen for some time. It's hardly the most sophisticated, but it does speak to clearly Moscow's attempts to undermine Ukrainian support across Europe at the moment. And we can understand why it's proved absolutely essential to keeping Ukraine in the fight in terms of the weapons that have been provided. But if this is the best that Moscow can do, which is basically arranging for a few individuals to turn up in different European capitals holding banners and saying that they're against the government's stance on Ukraine, well, I don't think we can expect that support to dissipate anytime soon because, frankly, reading this report, it all comes across as rather embarrassing. But an interesting one, Dom, and one that, as I say, I'd point listeners to. Yeah, still the, uh, the the analog disinformation, I guess. Gaz, any final thoughts? Any final thoughts? Uh, I suppose in summary, snake malware takedown is a very good thing. It's a good poke in the eye for the Russian intelligence services. It's a good example of the cyber war that's still boiling underneath all of the uh, conventional above-ground conflict that is going on in Ukraine today. But it is, as, as all things are in the cyber world, a temporary setback. The FSB's snake will hiss again. And as for AI and cyber war, well, it's going to happen. And I would be surprised if it hasn't already started to filter around the edges. But hopefully I'll be able to come back and talk about that soon. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, There is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can always get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod 
at telegraph.co.uk, we do read every message. You can also contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Emily Hill. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.